Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. In our last episode, we asked the question, how long can the Christian faith survive in recognizable form in a church context where the work of theology is held in suspicion and the priority of divine authorship of Holy Scripture plays little to no role in biblical interpretation? We asked, is there not a true sense in which the front lines of the church's spiritual warfare today is in the library? As we turn our attention to possible remedies for this situation, does our concern for ideas suggest a new kind of Gnosticism, or is there another way to think about the rehabilitation of the theological life of the Church in relationship to Scripture and the ministry? Good day to you. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to episode number 36 of Greystone Conversations. Today's episode features the second and concluding part of a conversation I was honored to have with two esteemed friends and experienced theologians, Dr. Robert Letham, Greystone Fellow and Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Union School of Theology based in Cardiff, Wales, and Dr. Gary Williams, Greystone Fellow and Director of the Pastors Academy in London, with whom Greystone is very pleased to partner. Doctors Letham and Williams have long experience teaching and writing theology in the United Kingdom, and we met to discuss some of the pressing and rather concerning challenges facing the Church in the UK in terms of theology and biblical hermeneutics. In the first part of this conversation, we discussed how we might think about the nature and background to this urgent state of affairs, and we agreed that the situation is indeed urgent, with the very prospects of orthodoxy in question for the Church in the United Kingdom and throughout the Western world. Doctors Letham, Williams, and I discussed the diagnosis, and in predictably and necessarily negative terms. And today, in the second stage of our conversation, we explore what the solution or solutions might look like. That solution, we suggest, includes at least three elements. One is the more obvious need for the recovery of properly theological interest in the faith, life, and ministry of Christ's Church, and one which we recognize has both exegetical roots as well as exegetical consequences. Our theology shapes how we read Scripture, whether we intend this relationship or not, and it is in fact quite unbiblical to divorce faithful biblical reading and interpretation from the work of theology. Theology is, in fact, the disciplined and ordered reading of Holy Scripture, which attends to its anchor in the Trinitarian God of the Christian faith and the purpose of that God in history a purpose brought to its fullness, beginning to end, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second of the three elements of a remedy for our times is attention to the institutional and organizational contexts 
in which such a recovery might be advanced. This requires exploration of the successes and failures of traditional institutions, but also openness to the ways non-traditional and newer entities might be well-equipped to serve as vehicles for a further reformation of the Church according to the Word of God. The third element may be the least popular in today's evangelical world, and yet its unpopularity is its own indicator of how far we've fallen and how far we have to go. Liturgy Yes, liturgy. We are not Gnostics, and so we must not allow ourselves to indulge the temptation to think that the remedy is simply more ideas or better ideas, whether about doctrine or the scriptures. No, it is in fact a refusal of the scriptures themselves to imagine that orthodoxy can long survive in a church context where it is detached from the worshiping and common life of God's people, where the routines, rhythms, and cadences of the sacred assembly cannot repeatedly reorder us toward our life in Christ, including our thinking. Liturgy is too often seen as part of the problem with the church today, as though interest in liturgical realities is itself evidence of an arid and empty spiritual sterility. But the result is a generation or more of professing Christians with little to no working grammar of the Bible, the creeds of the church, the prayers of the church, and the why behind all of the conventional and established parts of the what of gathered worship. And still we wonder why old heresies now seem so attractive to the biblically naive and underinformed. Liturgy. Yes, it divides Christians from one another, but this is no indication of its relative importance. The truth is that it divides because it matters, for how we worship forms us, and we are a people greatly in need of spiritual formation. The Lord has revealed in his word he is pleased ordinarily to carry out that formation precisely in the liturgical assembly of his people under word and sacrament. Well, today's conversation reflects Greystone's longstanding and deep commitment to supporting the retrieval and advancement of properly theological and biblical traditions of Christian ministry and ministerial training throughout the United Kingdom and in other parts of the world. In the UK, this is especially carried out through our partnerships with the Pastors Academy in London and Ely Presbyterian Church Reformed in Cardiff, Wales. Your Greystone membership supports our efforts to that end, as well as provides you unlimited access to the rapidly growing online library of full course modules, special lecture events, postgraduate seminar presentations, and more, all at greystoneconnect.org. If you aren't already a member, please do consider joining today for only $18 a month or your currency equivalent at greystoneconnect.org. And if you'd like to secure group or institutional membership for your church leadership team, theological education institution, or other group or organization, just write us today to inquire at info at greystoneinstitute.org. But thank you once again for spending some time with us today to reflect together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our triune God. And now, with Dr. Lethem and Dr. Williams, I am Mark Garcia, and here is episode 36 of Greystone Conversations.
Well, thank you, Doctors Letham and Williams, for joining Greystone Conversations again to continue our conversation from last time about the prospects and need for theology, not only in the United Kingdom and the churches of the United Kingdom, but of course throughout the world, but with a special interest in the situation in the UK. And we did spend all of last time in a rather negative vein, didn't we? Talking really only about all the problems, or at least some of the problems, and how we have arrived in a situation of some urgency. And my sense is that we do indeed have a situation of some urgency that we have been considering together. And in our conversation last time, we suggested that the the stakes are nothing less than the orthodoxy of the church going forward. And so thank you both for joining us for a continued conversation today, and we look forward to your insights as we now turn our attention to what the remedies might look like. So welcome to you both. Thank you, Mark, very much. It's good to be back for more therapy. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start us off today, if it's okay, reading what is just the opening paragraph of one of the more influential works published in the last decade or so, 2011, in fact, which has, uh, among many other works, facilitated a recovery and even a renaissance of interest in uh, classical theological doctrine and readings of Scripture. I have in mind the work by Khaled Anatolius called Retrieving Nicaea, subtitled The Development and Meaning of Trinitarian Doctrine. Again, one of many works published over the last maybe 20 years or so that has generated a revival of interest in classical ways of thinking theologically about Scripture and the Church. The opening paragraph expresses a sentiment I think we would all share, but may help focus our concerns and and interests today. So this is, again, just page one, opening paragraph. These are the words now of Anatolius. In this book, he says, I aim to exhibit the intelligibility of Trinitarian doctrine by interpreting the writings of key Christian thinkers of the 4th and early 5th centuries. My premise is that if we wish to understand Trinitarian doctrine, we must observe how it came to be formulated in the councils of Nicaea, 325, and Constantinople, 381, and how such formulations were interpreted in the immediate aftermath of these councils. The approach taken here rejects as simplistic any sharp distinction between historical theology, as what it meant then, and systematic theology, as what it means now. Rather, it traces the logic whereby Trinitarian doctrine developed in order to find resources for contemporary appropriation of this doctrine. We cannot ignore the historical development and gain direct access to the objective reference of the normative statements of Trinitarian doctrine. We must creatively re-perform the acts of understanding and interpretation that led to those statements. In other words, in order to grasp Trinitarian doctrine creatively in our own setting, we must retrieve Nicaea. Those are the words, again, of Anatolius in the opening paragraph of his book. And while there's a lot going on in this paragraph, what 
particularly leaps out at me for our purposes is, in light of what we said last time, what is involved in the stakes being, as we have said, nothing less than the orthodoxy of the Christian church going forward if we were to lose completely, or more than has already been the case, our commitment to, devotion to, theology properly conceived as elemental to the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the church, and the Christian exegesis of Scripture, Old and New Testaments together in their canonical unity, the Christian exegesis that marked, by and large, the entire history of the church until the rise of the modern era and the fairly new preoccupation with matters of authorial intention, human authorial intention, I should say, and grammar and history as, in some way, exhausting meaning of the text for Scripture. To maintain the orthodoxy of the Christian church, by which we ordinarily mean at least its Nicene orthodoxy, among other things, requires, as Anatolius is reminding us, not only an embrace of the language of the creed itself, if you will. Yes, I believe those things to be true in some abstract, objective sense. But it means to embrace the theological thinking at work in the church's creed, in how the church came to use such grammar as a church long has used it, both to reject certain errors as well as to affirm certain truths, and in every case to acknowledge the deep mysteries involved in the truth. What I'm suggesting is Anatolius might help us appreciate how it was the reading of Scripture and not only doing theology in some narrow sense, it was the reading of Scripture, a certain Christian reading of Scripture, that generated what we regard as orthodoxy in the statements of Nicaea and Constantinople and going forward. And if we lose both an interest in theology properly considered and we lose a commitment to a Christian reading of Scripture, we will, before very long, lose any meaningful connection to why our creeds say what they do and how they came to say what they say and why it still matters that we know how and why and not just what when it comes to the creeds of the Orthodox Christian faith. So it suggests to me that there is a rather strong and conspicuous doctrinal aspect to what the remedy would uh, have to include but not doctrinal in the very narrow sense of let's do systematic theology as a in the modern sense of that discipline, but in the classical sense of what is properly theological, which has always included a particular hermeneutic. So the issues of biblical exegesis, the issues of Christian reading of Scripture, have always gone hand-in-hand hand with what we mean by the doctrinal content of the Christian faith. And it would seem that going forward and seeing improvement in the areas we have identified serious problems would at least have to require a commitment to the deep connections of those two activities as well as the stakes involved, as when we lose our reading of Scripture as Christians, it's not long before we lose our orthodoxy as well. What do you think about that? Do you think that's the case? In what way have you perhaps thought along similar lines as you have considered the problem we were discussing last time? 
You've, you've started, Mark, I think, optimistically, supposing that we wish to retain the teaching of the creeds. This is an encouraging dose of optimism because I think that there is a, a fairly prevalent movement to say that the kind of language of the creeds is too metaphysical so why would you want to keep it in the first place mm. so yes granting that we are concerned to affirm the creedal doctrine of the trinity and the incarnation then i think it indeed a vital insight to say that that means inhabiting the way that they got to it mm. and to point out as he does that the way they got to it was fundamentally exegetical and through poring over the scriptures and wrestling over the scriptures with heretical misinterpretations of them is extremely important for reminding us that the creedal conclusions were not the alien imports of, of Greek metaphysics, but actually grew out of the study of the text. So I think that's an extremely helpful insight. Mm. Um, but it does presuppose that we're bothered about keeping the teaching of the creeds, and, and in some circles, things are far worse than that. And I'm not only no. talking about liberal circles, I'm talking about in, in evangelical circles, soi-disant evangelical circles that are sniffy about the creeds, um, mm. because they're the products of of Greek philosophy. He answers yeah. that, in effect, I think. He, he actually answers the more extreme version as well by saying, no, 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 this grew out of exegetical work. Oh. And that's vital for reminding those who profess to love the scriptures that you can't, therefore, play fast and loose with the creedal positions. And when you say it grew out of exegetical work on the text, it was the text taken as a whole, hmm. as Gregory said the sense of scripture that's right all not in the statements but the entailments and the interrelation with those entailments and so on and so forth rather than a fundamentalist commitment to the text which as we were discussing last week leads nowhere but to danger hmm. um, in that sense yes there's a need for understanding the theology in context and the fullest context and the historical trajectory and the text, as the Westminster Confession puts it, not only the express statements, but what by good and necessary consequence can be deduced from Scripture, which I would hazard a guess is not a view shared by a majority, uh, certainly in the UK. And then... Yes, the creeds, because if you look down the list of systematic theologies by evangelical or reformed theologians published in the last, within the last 30 years, two of them, at least at one point, repudiated uh, the doctrine of eternal generation, Grudem and Raymond. Raymond opposed Nicene Trinitarianism itself and taught a generation of ministers who are now ministering in the PCA and some in the OPC, which is why I was so scathing in my review of his systematic theology in the Westminster Journal, because in fact he had stepped outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And I was given to understand he stepped back in later on before he was received into the OPC. And at least one, there's two, the other was Wayne Grudem, of course, and then is one who believed said, yeah, eternal generation, I agree, but it shouldn't be made a test of doctrinal orthodoxy. That was John Frame. And much of that was based upon a misreading of the idea of sola scriptura. I mean, it's this idea that these five slogans, when were they concocted? The 19th, early 20th century, something like that. 
sola scriptura, sola fide, sola Christus, sola gratia. Well, what they may have been intended to say was perfectly okay, but what they've been understood to say is rather different, namely sola scriptura, that it's only scripture to the exclusion of any other source. So you have material which is published which contains nothing virtually but scriptural quotations. And that leads to a, you know, the creeds are kind of therefore sidelined, mm-hmm. whereas the 39 articles state that the three creeds, Nicene, Apostles and Athanasian, ought thoroughly to be received and believed mm-hmm. because they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture to go together. They're the distillation of the yes. biblical exegesis of the not only the early church, but the church right the way through the centuries, Eastern, Western, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. For the record, I think it's the case that uh, in a recent meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, yeah. Wayne Grudem also stepped back in when it came to yeah. eternal generation, yeah. not the other controversial concept of his of the eternal subordination of the right. but on eternal generation he did but yes yeah. this is a it's, it's actually been quite alarming that this has happened with such ease in yeah. the recent decade or so i think if they got into the tardis and went back and found themselves in the fourth century they would have been sent into exile and deposed from their bishoprics and two or three hundred years later if they're in the east they'd be mutilated and possibly beheaded publicly in the stadium which sounds, sounds a lot worse than a bad or negative review of their book in the uh, Westminster Theological <laughs> no, Journal. Right. Yes, Indeed, yeah. We have it very easy. <laughs> Indeed. Now, part of the, the great irony and tragedy of the picture, and I don't want to go back to our being negative. This was supposed to be the positive conversation. <laughs> it's going um, really well, Mark. It's going, going very well. <laughs> right on track. It's, it's, pre- it's precisely the function of the creeds in the early church that signals how they can serve now as a terrific help. I'm persuaded by that scholarship, which has only gained in momentum, I think, and and, uh, compelling scholarship over the last, oh, maybe, I guess, two decades or so, which has identified a regular fide, a rule of faith, within the New Testament itself, with deep roots in Torah, going as far back at least as certain statements in Exodus and certainly Deuteronomy, and the Shema and so on, but a rule of faith as a snapshot, yes, in a kind of proto-creedal form of the distinctive commitments of the Christian faith, but which is not merely a summary of things believed, but which was from the outset to rule the reading of Scripture, to protect the church from the grave dangers of heterodoxy which is funded by a naive biblicism. Uh, Arius was a biblicist. The Sassinians were biblicists of a sort. They thought they were being more biblical than the orthodox opponents they dealt with. The rule of faith, which I do think by way of the baptismal creed that it became, and which became the basis, uh, at least in content, the Caesarean rule of faith became the basis in content for the Nicene Creed, and going forward, the fact that the rule of faith and then the early creeds functioned as ecclesiastical realities for helping the church on the ground to avoid soul-destroying error, which was always at the door 
using Scripture to be as enticing as it is, uh, always with a biblical uh, argument to make, the rule of faith was a was an exegetical rule. It was a rule for how to read Scripture to protect the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. The very thing so many are concerned about now, which is to be biblical rather than go off on the, you know, maybe philosophical or whatever the case may be, go down the road of philosophical dangers. No, let's be more biblical. That's what the creeds were for in the first place, was to help us ensure that we're biblical. And is is the question here then whether Scripture gives you rules on how to read Scripture? Indeed. So the the rule of faith is itself, it's not an extra biblical imposition. Absolutely not. Because it is the thread of Scripture itself. Indeed, yes. You've indicated and so what you're saying then, presumably, Mark, is that Scripture tells us how to read Scripture, whereas the, the fundamentalist model is you sit me down in front of a text and I stare at that text in isolation and try to work out what it means. And I don't listen to the, the whole and the coherence mm. and the thread of the whole. Mm. Um, so mm. that's the alternative model, isn't it? It's Again, it's me and my Bible on my own, uh, mm-hmm. supposedly. Though, of course, actually, in that scenario, I have my own rule of faith, which has come from somewhere. So the, 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 one of the big theological questions here is, does Scripture teach us how to read Scripture or not? Mm. Or does it just leave us dropped in front of every text on its own? And this idea of a, of a rule of faith which culminates in creedal statements is simply an attempt to summarize the way in which Scripture regulates the interpretation of Scripture. Mm. And it's ultimately not a biblical problem in the abstract, but it's a betrayal, uh, at least potentially, of the Trinitarian reality back of Scripture itself. It's a denial in practice that the Father has sent the Son, and the Eternal Son is the one through whom the Word has come to the Church in its unity from beginning to end, and who in the economic reality of his service to the church and building of the church throughout the ages is the scopus of scripture from Genesis 1 forward. It is his word. He is the ground of its unity, not text as such. Uh, It is the person of the son who is the ground for the unity, canonical and theological unity of scripture, who as early church fathers put it so movingly, traverses the world of scripture by way of the space, time, and vocational concerns uh, of Israel's history, uh, the festival seasons, the rites, the ceremonies, straight through until the unique event of the incarnation in which the son has assumed concrete flesh and blood to himself. He is the scopus of scripture. It's fundamentally a rejection of Christ's scriptures. Mm-hmm and the relationship of Scripture to Christ. And so even as we're insisting this is not listening to Scripture reading itself, ultimately it's a matter of idolatry or devotion to the Christ whose word this is, who has personally operated through the word in its canonical theological unity. And it needs to be framed, I think, in those terms, Christological and Trinitarian, as well as Bibliological, because these things belong together. The the scriptures don't become about Christ at the end. They are his word from the beginning. It's him with, with whom we have to do when we refuse the witness of the Holy Spirit and how Scripture speaks of him from beginning to end. And putting it in those terms suggests the very issues of piety and devotion to Jesus Christ that so many in 
our churches would say is their heart's desire, is the pulse speed of what they think the church should be about. And yet I'm not sure that this is always accounted for in, uh, as part of that picture. And, and that's why the removal of Christ from the Psalms, for example, ends up having doctrinal consequences. That what starts looking innocent, which is we want to take it seriously as it was first given mm. by David and limit it to David and, and not talk about Christ here, mm. um, is that ends up saying more than just something about how you read that psalm. It ends up saying something about uh, reality itself um, mm. and, and about the Son of God and therefore has ultimately, this is obviously not to say that somebody who holds such a view of a particular psalm has got there yet, but ultimately down the track ends up undermining fundamentally the, the reality of who Christ is. Mm. There's a line there, isn't there? That's helpful. We're, to throw, um, throw a spanner in the works, as it were, would be to charge Calvin with that kind of problem, because, because he's notoriously cautious about referring passages in the Old Testament to Christ, even some which are almost universally accepted, and was accused of Judaizing. He was. And his whole focus, as he says in his introductory letter, Simon Grineus, before his Romans commentary, is almost the sole task of the expositor is to expound the meaning of the author. Now, it seems a lot of the time that his really limited himself to the human author. It's exactly that. There's a striking similarity between his method in his first published work, exegeting Seneca, and his, yeah. and his later biblical commentary, isn't there? Mm. It's, yeah. it's, it's an overdoing of, of what was the, the brilliance of the humanist method, in, in many senses, yeah. and, necessary, and necessary for gaining attention to the grammatical historical sense of the text. Yeah. Nobody's, I, I take it that the three of us are not disagreeing with grammatical historical exegesis as a starting point for working out what the words meant when they were first mm -hmm. given. But the question yeah. is whether you stop there and whether you then connect yeah. to the rest of the canon of scripture and, and read into textually. And, yeah. yeah. I often set my master's module here on doctrine of scripture you know, every two or three years. Or so, uh, we don't do it every year, of course. Questions change. As a, a comparative analysis of Calvin and Augustine, on the Old Testament, particular reference to places like Genesis 22, Psalm 22, and Augustine, Psalm 22, I think he starts off by saying, this psalm refers to Christ, goes straight to the death and resurrection of Christ, whereas Calvin does talk about Christ, but it's with almost through gritted teeth, you might say. Mm. Now, as we think about about what the way forward might look like, invariably the discussion would would end up going in the direction of what some of our traditional institutions are doing along the lines of keeping the tradition of the church, keeping theological theology, to use John Webster's expression, in front of the church, keeping properly theological thinking before the church in terms of how the church thinks of its ministry and so on. We were commenting before we started recording today how there are, in fact, a lot of institutions throughout the UK doing great work, continuing to do good work along these lines. It's not as simple as saying the traditional institutions for training ministers and the like have dropped any substantial interest in theology. At the same time, 
the question of what the vehicles might be, to refer to your expression earlier, Bob, the vehicles might be for a remedy in the UK is a significant question. In what contexts are the problems most pronounced, most visible, and in what contexts might we invest our energy and our prayer and our resources and our labor with a long view of recovery and advancement of the orthodoxy of the church in the UK, given the kinds of urgent problems we have we have suggested that there are? Uh, what are those contexts? What are those vehicles in the UK as it really is right now? Well, of course, there's, there's a number of, you might say, conservative and reformed seminaries. I can think of you know, four, maybe five off the top of my head, four certainly. And I mean, they're going about doing a pretty good job one way or another, I think. But at the same time, it's, it's not a problem which is going to be resolved overnight. It's going to take quite a while because the trend to kind of individualism and the kind of biblicism we've been discussing is, is really ingrained. And it's particularly evident in churches. There's a large, large number of independent churches in the UK, and you can only deal with things one at a time, in effect, there. Mm. That's the situation as it is at the moment. Gary's probably got some comments to make there. No, I, I agree very much. I think it's, it's going to take a long time. I think it's cultural and requires patience and perseverance. And when we refer to it as cultural in, in some sense, this is a way of noting that it's something that belongs to churches as congregations on the ground, as it were, and not necessarily of theology institutions. What would account for the cultural reality here, the way Christians tend to think about what the Christian faith is and what reading the Bible is. What are the factors at work there? To be sure, we could talk about that endlessly over many episodes, but are, are there a few points to remember that belong to that cultural reality? Well, I think at root it goes back to various forms of individualism. You could trace it back to nominalism centuries ago. It's the same thing in, in the United States as well, rugged individualism, mm. and you look down your index in hymn books, chorus books, or whatever, the focus is very, very much on me. An old hymn, Break Thou the Bread of Life, Dear Lord, to Me. That thinking is not simply in Christian circles, it, it, it's culturally wide. I mean, we talk about a, a crowd in terms of the number of individuals. One man, one vote. British tax system is based upon individuals. Marriage is no longer... In America, you can file marriage filing jointly or marriage filing separately. In this country, you file as an individual. So it's that way of thinking. And so it also affects the way you read the Bible, because then you read the individual book in front of you. Almost geared to thinking in particulars and not... You know, particular realities and entities rather than connections, as in the Middle Ages they were. They all talk about synthesis, bringing things together, indeed holding sometimes apparently contradictory positions together in, in an overall synthesis. Whereas here, now, it's that kind of individualist emphasis, I think, which is 
culture-wide. As I think about the question of what a remedy might look like, I tend to find I continue to go in a a certain direction, which I expect, unfortunately, might be quite unpopular for at least some in our audience, uh, maybe maybe many. And yet I think it requires uh, consideration, and that is the place of liturgy and the liturgical in what we mean by recovering orthodoxy. And this is true historically, it's true biblically, it's true theologically, it's true culturally. Historically, we need to appreciate how much of the debate and theologizing and exegesis at work leading up to and through our creeds were driven by liturgical concerns by questions of baptism, questions of the worship of the church, and questions of office and who should or shouldn't be an officer in the church. There were so many liturgical aspects to the drivers for these uh, early creeds that don't tend to get much attention. One concern I have in all this is that we don't want to suggest that the remedy is a form of Gnosticism. What we need are better ideas, and simply better ideas. We need more theology in the sense of ideas. We need better hermeneutics in the sense of ideas of how to read the Bible, arguments as such. We don't want to have a disembodied remedy because there's no disembodied gospel. The liturgy is the flesh and blood, if you will, the historical concrete context for orthodoxy, for Christians, for the church. Historically, it's functioned that way. And biblically, it functions that way. And yet, liturgy is one of the bad words, if you will, for a lot of evangelical contexts in the UK and in the US, to be sure, where it's seen as part of the problem. And to be sure, there is such a thing as empty liturgy. There is such a thing as arid ritual. It's a tragic and I think ultimately disastrous confusion to suggest that liturgy is inherently and necessarily empty of spiritual vitality. Quite the contrary. And what my concern is, if I could put it in these terms, how can orthodoxy survive and let alone flourish in an ecclesiological context that is missing its meaningful connection with the church throughout history in the form of the things that are said when they are gathered, the regularity of their gathering, the place of the Eucharistic table, the Lord's Supper, and the regularity of their gathering. If the preaching is limited to a preacher's reflections on his own experience with the text, or it goes only so far as his own ideas about the text, but does not involve the faith of the church throughout the ages, if the things said, the things done, if you will, the ritual features of the Christian life, the church's life, are not seen as a key part of orthodoxy, of the faith confessed and believed. For how long can the faith remain orthodox if we have no meaningful connection with the church beyond our our congregational experience? Uh, This goes hand-in-hand with many other concerns. I wonder how long we avoid a faulty Christology in, in thinking this way. But the place of recovering the liturgical as a part of recovering... Um, right. the theological and hermeneutical. Right. What do you think about that? 
Yes, well, I think this came up in a conference shortly after I arrived back in this country. Mm. I was saying about the Doctrine Trinity, you need to bring it into your liturgy. And somebody got up and said, we don't have a liturgy. And I said, yes, you do. I grew up in the Plymouth Brethren, as a child in the Plymouth Brethren, and I soon knew that in a situation where any Tom, Dick or Harry could get up and do whatever they wanted, that there was inevitably, you could predict what the order would be, you could predict what people were going to say. Mm. You've either got a good liturgy or a bad one. And a good liturgy is one which, as, as you were just saying, follows the patterns of the church and establishes the identity of faith with those who've gone before and with those with the apostles. Now, and I agree with you, the place in the church where I was a senior minister for 17 years in Delaware, we had a subtle blend of Geneva, Edinburgh, perhaps, uh, Canterbury and Constantinople. But anyway, it was identifying ourselves with the past and the present. Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and so on and so forth. And that is really what keeps, as you say, keeps people within the bounds, because it represents the the biblical understanding and the Christological focus and Trinitarian focus of the whole church. That indeed is crucial. I think this may be our biggest problem, Mark, to be honest. I think Mm. this is probably greater than any other problem because the heart of the church is not in the seminary. It is its corporate worship. That's that's where we're heading. We're heading to gather around the throne um, and we have the manifestation of that gathering in this age in our corporate worship. And I think in this country... We have some traditional corporate worship. Sometimes it's simply traditional, and it's not quite clear why it is the way it is, and it tends to be a sort of big, multi-layered hymn sandwich. And then we have churches, evangelical churches, even in their preaching, conservative evangelical churches, which have really completely moved to the contemporary Mm. in their forms of corporate worship. There are very few places that are finding, I think, that difficult combination of the reverent and the joyful. Mm. And there are places which are so reverent that they're half dead. And there are places that are so joyful that they're irreverent. And how, mm. we, how we tread that path and what that looks like in terms of the structure of a service and whether there is a biblically mandated structure of a service and whether you have a call to worship or whether you even have a, a confession mm. of sin. Uh, these, mm. these are all things up in the air in many churches in this country. Mm. Um, and actually, that's a bigger problem, I think. Mm. Or even corporate worship. Well, indeed, even if it is worship, yes, yes, it's not even yeah. not. There's a there's a big, big movement that is not even worship. You're as much worshiping the Lord when you mow your lawn as you are when you put your lawnmower down and and walk into the gathering of God's people on the day which isn't His day. Well, the individualism that we've noted in the context of exegesis, I wonder if it plays a significant role here as well, since one of my concerns on the liturgical side of things is the loss of a sense of the common life of a Christian with those in the congregation, to be sure, in the concrete context of his or her worshiping life, but also spiritually the common life he or she has with the church that belongs to Christ throughout the ages. A common life which used to be seen traditionally Mm -hmm. as a life we have in common with each other from, from font to funeral, And when you lose the sacraments of baptism and the supper and their traditional significance, which have structured and framed 
Christian experience as a common life. And uh, I wonder how much maneuvering you can do outside of those, to be sure, debated and controversial concerns to still retain the common life of bearing one another's burdens, fellowship and prayer, responsibilities as well as privileges of belonging to a particular body, the very notion of church membership. To be sure, the language of membership doesn't have to be used, but the reality is of entering into a common life formally where there are responsibilities and privileges, taking the long view of that fellowship. So the opposite of the kind of shopping mall mentality uh, or the revolving door mentality of choosing congregations based on my personal interests and desires at the moment or felt needs and the like. But the investment, the sacrifice, the cost that the scriptures assume is basic to Christian identity in community in fellowship with that community as it's structured in a way that makes it different from any other community in the world structured by those sacramental realities. If you lose that, can you still have the kind of things we have suggested the church needs for its recovery? Or does the rampant individualism find its way here as well as just one more expression of what we see in hermeneutics or theology, rejecting creeds and so on, reading the Bible as as I, I think it speaks to me and the like? I would endorse entirely your advocacy of liturgical corporate participation because otherwise in even the most conservative churches where the minister does all the praying, effectively the minister is performing his private devotions and the congregation is is looking on almost like spiritual voyeurs, whereas in, in a liturgical setting the whole congregation is participating confessing sins, receiving absolution, participating in the prayers as well, interactively. It puts the individual in the context of the whole worship of the community rather than as a spectator sport, where either the minister or a few sort of more overt and extrovert persons are participating. Mm. Can I ask you, brothers, if you have seen anything that's going on in the United Kingdom that have encouraged you about progress being made on one or more of these fronts? Any good things you see are happening that encourage you that there is reason for some optimism as we uh, look forward to what might be uh, taking place to help remedy the situation? In our own Church, I think, in in the recent difficulties with the pandemic, we've seen great acts of kindness and compassion within the body of God's people, even when we can't meet together. Mm. So I think that there are definite uh, signs of the Spirit at work bearing fruit in people's lives. So in the midst of, of all of our weaknesses and failings, the Lord is active and at work, and that is manifest in the way that people look after each other and those sorts of things are happening all over the place. In that sense, I think things are never as bleak as we might make them out to be. Um, but, and we're not consistent. If we were consistent, it would be an absolute disaster because all of the errors that we hold and the weaknesses that we hold would shatter the, the entirety of our Christian discipleship and theology. Um, but the Lord keeps us from our inconsistency, doesn't Indeed. he? So even when we can, even when we can highlight serious issues in contemporary evangelicalism in Britain and real problems which could lead here and there at the same time because of the Lord's kindness and keeping us from being utterly consistent. Even a church which says 
basically, you know, don't find Christ here, don't read this in the light of the rest of Scripture. It's maybe full of people who are bearing all sorts of fruit of the Spirit. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, the the New Testament is full of reference to churches which are in a very bad yeah. shape. Absolutely, and Paul, when he was dying, the church seemed to be on the verge of falling apart. But nevertheless, it's uh, it's Christ's church, and he keeps it going. And um, in the UK, in any case, it's not the whole world. It's only one small part. And I would say, yes, uh, Gary's absolutely right. And, of course, I think there are, I mean, there's not the only people who share these concerns. Yes. And there are others, too, who not only share them, but are, are motivated to try to make arrangements to begin to address them significantly and seriously in the coming yes. years. Yes. And in different ways, I think both both of you are working in contexts that are quite important parts of the solution, as it were, or the remedy, in different ways. I remember reading not that long ago, uh, I think it's a fantastic article in First Things by Ephraim Radner called Theology After the Virus, when he was pointing to the unexpected but real opportunity created for theological education by the upsetting of the traditional ways of going about ministerial training and theological education, not only connected to the virus itself, but in a lot of things leading up to the virus. And among the things he suggested we now have the opportunity to do is see traditional institutions connect with non-traditional, smaller-scale organizations that are focused on this or that facet of what is greatly needed which would be organizations that help traditional institutions focus on things such as reconnecting with the classic texts of the Christian tradition. Uh, If one was building a a pastoral or institutional library for the first time, selecting the texts that will be meaningful for more than just your lifetime, that won't reflect only your particular interest right now from your favorite contemporary author, but the texts that have proven their value to the church over time, over the years. As I think about what he was proposing along these lines, I think about your courses, Dr. Lethem at Union, and what you've uh, been doing for us at Greystone as well, and that you have facilitated the reconnecting uh, of students and ministers now with the texts of the Christian tradition and have insisted that this is a key part of maintaining and advancing Christian orthodoxy. And I think of your work, Gary, in the Pastors Academy, where you have study days that are, in many cases, crafted specifically to reconnect current ministers and ministerial students with the classic texts and ideas of the Christian faith, including a recent one on the Incarnation uh, that you were Mm. mentioning. Could you both say something more about your own labors in your own context where you have carried out these kinds of, of efforts of reconnecting the church with the story that is bigger than her immediate moment in one way or another that you have thought important to do? Gary, would you mind telling us about your work in that context? Yes, at the Pastors' Academy, we're, we're trying to help pastors after seminary to keep thinking and learning and growing theologically, and, and we also provide pastoral support for them. And on the teaching side, yeah, the day that you mentioned at the moment, we take around the country to groups of pastors. So a local pastor will convene a group, and, and I work my way around, and I have colleagues who teach in biblical studies and ethics. 
And especially in the doctrine days, there's a lot of historical theology there. So at the moment, I'm, I'm doing a day on the incarnation um, with a, a fair amount of John of Damascus in it. And I'm doing a fair amount of work on Maximus the Confessor to try to, to draw out some of the important developments after the Council of Chalcedon, because most most people who've had a seminary training have about got to Chalcedon. Um, yeah. and with a bit of reminding, they'll, they'll be fine up to that point. But what about what happens afterwards? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and hypostasia, what about two wills, two two minds, and those kinds of questions, which are hugely important questions when you're, yes. when you're talking about the temptation of Jesus or about his knowledge and those sorts of things. And so it's trying to encourage the ministers back into those issues with those resources. Um, and then in the London Seminary course where I teach um, more and more of the systematics, again, it will be introducing them to these authors um, and encouraging them to engage with them and, and to think in terms of system and the big picture and to make the connections. Brilliant. And those who are interested, I'm sure, can find out more about the Pastors Academy's work along these lines by going to the website or send an email for inquiry uh, about opportunities coming up uh, as well. Yeah, it's all, it's yeah. all there on the website. Yeah. All there on the website. And Bob, how have your courses and your efforts at Union and elsewhere reflected similar concerns? Well, yeah, well, I'm, I do it um, systematic theology, of course, here and I try not to make any uh, dividing lines historical. In fact, we're on Systematic Theology 1 module. We're exactly the same state as Gary, dealing with the Incarnation, and we're taking it through Chalcedon to Anhypostasia, Monothelitism, Monophysitism, on to uh, the Lutheran Reform debates in the 16th century and onwards, of course. So that we, we try to deal with that all the time. In my master's module, Doctrine of Scripture, we one of the, the two main tracks, one is doctrinal, the other is the history of interpretation. So we have everyone look at extensively a text by Oregon, for whom I have quite a lot of favorable things to say. Basil, Chrysostom, Augustine, uh, Aquinas, and, and so on and so forth, Calvin. So we get them to be aware of the way the church has interpreted the Bible historically and the factors which have guided it and the parameters within which it's been read. So they're coming away with the tools with which to recognize and evaluate what weaknesses and dangers and strengths, on the other hand, of contemporary questions. can't do that if you just take them literally by themselves. You know, we deal with things like speech act theory, possibological exegesis, and other kind of things which have occurred in the recent years. But mm-hmm. it has to be on a foundation of, of, of what's gone before. Well, thank you for that. My takeaway, brothers, of what we have said last time and in this conversation would be uh, along these three lines. Tell me if I'm missing something that you think is is important or getting it wrong. I'd be uh, I'm keen to get your reactions, but I, I think the remedy would look at least like this. Uh, these three points come to mind. One would be the the urgency that we reacquaint ourselves with the Christian tradition, but not only in the sense of understanding what has taken place and what has been said, maybe especially in our creeds, but with why those things have been said and how the church has arrived at these 
statements and conclusions since so often this involves quite uh, careful thinking about why the errors are so dangerous and what we must reject along the way. Um, so reacquainting ourselves with the Christian tradition along the lines of the why and not just the what of what the church confesses as true. And secondly, reacquainting ourselves with the Christian tradition of biblical reading. Uh, reading the Bible not as the Bible in the narrow sense, a book among other books, but as Holy Scripture. And from the outset, unique within a world of text, unique as it is God's Word, whose meaning is driven by its divine authorship, a meaning which is to be pursued and articulated in terms of its canonical and Christological unity in relation to the church's confessed faith, the rule of faith, uh, so rejecting that kind of artificial division between theological interest and ecclesiastical statement and being biblical uh, and recognizing that there is an intra-biblical logic of biblical reading that is part of Christian discipleship and devotion. So reacquainting ourselves also with the Christian tradition of biblical reading. But then finally, uh, we've suggested that this remedy would have to include, to some degree at least, developing a self-consciousness when it comes to our liturgy, uh, the church's practice in worship and self-consciousness as a community of, of Jesus Christ with the constituent features of a common life, a communal life. Uh, similar to the question of uh, ritual, are we ritual or not is not the question, but which rituals do we, in fact, adhere to and operate with? We are all liturgical. We are invariably liturgical in our congregations. Uh, there are some traditions which have a rich tradition of liturgy, where it's easier to find examples of edifying um, liturgy that shapes a church community in faithfulness. Others may need to reacquaint themselves with the tradition of the church's worship, uh, since this is not only important for congregational life and experience, as well as the orthodoxy of our worship and our preaching, but this liturgical aspect of the church's faith and life is part of her overall orthodoxy and has a lot to do with the doctrinal and hermeneutical concerns that we have we have reviewed together. So reacquainting ourselves with the Christian tradition, not only of doctrine and creeds, but also of biblical reading and developing a self-consciousness liturgically. Uh, these are three things that come to mind. Would you say there are other things uh, that we should keep in mind as we consider the way forward? I think one thing might be, Mark, that to take the next step of saying, OK, so those are three things. But what does that look like in practice? How do you do that? Hmm. And I think a key a key move there is to say, well, pick it up and read it. So if the risk of, of some of the negativity, if the, well, if the negativity arises because people think, oh, this is all metaphysics, it's not the Bible, well, then pick up some Athanasius and read him and just see what he's doing. We talked last time about ricochet theology. I think this is sort of iceberg historiography. It's where people see the tip of the iceberg, which is this slightly Greek-sounding creedal language, and think that's all there is there. Whereas actually under the water is the massive work of exegesis. And you discover that by reading Athanasius on the Incarnation or something like that. Similarly, if you think that your very plain hymn sandwich in which only the pastor speaks mm. is reformed worship, 
then pick up a volume which actually walks you through one of Calvin's services and you won't believe what you find. Um, pick up a volume that takes you through something from Scotland or from the English Reformation and, and see what they were doing in their services. So I think a very practical thing would be, yes, do those three things, but actually do it by finding some sources that will give you first-hand exposure to the texts, because that's the quickest way of discovering that there's this whole world out there, mm-hmm. and which may be unfamiliar to us if we've never met it. And at the risk of uh, reckless self-promotion uh, for Greystone, this is one of the things Greystone is, is after. Is uh, This is a, a key part of Greystone's mission, as it is a reason for our, our partnership with the Pastors Academy that you lead, Gary. Within the context of Greystone study days, study weekends, special courses and events, and we're looking forward to being able to restart these in the UK once the uh, the virus lockdown is over. This is precisely what, what we are after, is the doctrine, biblical hermeneutics, and liturgical aspects of the Orthodox faith and life of the Church, opportunities to pause and linger over classic texts talk through them, work through them, notice the hermeneutical issues at work in them, uh, notice the thinking at work, and ask ourselves what it would look like to inhabit the theological world which is on display in these affirmations of the Christian truth and what difference it makes to continue to embrace them in this thick way, this self-conscious way to inhabit the biblical world as the real world, not as one among others. This is something we we are committed to in our various contexts of activity, especially uh, in our partnership with the Passions Academy and our work in the UK, which we look forward to resuming in in due course. And you can also expect this in every context where Greystone has and will be featuring uh, Dr. Letham's work. Uh, And your work, Bob, has been exemplary along these lines, and and I'm grateful for that. Well, thank you, brothers, very much indeed for your, your time again today and for your experience and reflections on the situation of the church in Britain and the the prospects for Christian orthodoxy going forward. Uh, I greatly appreciate your faithfulness over the years and the service each of you have rendered to Greystone in particular. And we look forward to seeing uh, more and more, not only from your pens or keyboards, as the case may be, um, but also uh, from your work at the Pastors Academy, Gary, and at Union, Bob, and uh, learning more of how the Lord continues to use you in your different contexts. But thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Look forward to talking with you again in due course. Until then, uh, the Lord go with you with his grace and peace, and thank you again for your service and time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone. Greystone.